Need, do I need to move it up a little bit? There we go. Good morning, everyone. A couple of you are having a good morning, apparently. Um, my name is Jeremy, or JJ, as you guys uh, have heard a couple of times. Uh, I'm super excited to be able to open God's word with you all. Um, I would like you all to open the Bible and turn to the book of Genesis, and we're going to be in chapter 1, uh, Genesis chapter 21. And uh, as you turn there, I'm going to tell you a story from my childhood in which I am the bad guy. Um, interesting fact about myself is I grew up with 12 siblings, um, so there were 13 of us in my family, um, eight girls, five boys. And uh, while we got along much of the time, as you can imagine, we occasionally, occasionally butted heads. Um, with that many kids in the, in the house, food never lasted very long. Uh, my mom told me that we used to go through upwards of 20-some gallons of milk a week, um, and that was just the milk. So as you can imagine, we loved eating. But with that many people in the house, the things that lasted the least amount of time were the snacks. Um, we didn't get snacks super often because they were expensive, and there were a lot of us. And so anytime there were snacks, we would try to call dibs or hide, hide them or whatever we could do to basically ensure that we would get our uh, portion of those snacks. And I can remember one time when I was about nine or 10, um, my mom had bought a bunch of special yogurts and um, they must have been on sale. She had like 20 or 30 of them and before long, they were almost gone. All right, and that, mor that morning I woke up one yogurt left. It's a blueberry yogurt, but we weren't allowed to eat it with breakfast. So I told everyone, hey, dibs, this is mine. I hid it in the back of the fridge just to make sure. And I thought that was that. And, but come lunchtime, when it was time to be eating that yogurt, I walk into the kitchen, and what do I see? My sister pulling a nice blueberry yogurt out of the fridge. As you can imagine, I was not real keen on her eating my snack. And so I said, hey, that's mine. She said, no, no, you, did, you never called dibs. I was like, no, no, I, I, it's mine. And basically, the fight went, consisted of us going, that's mine, no, it's not, it's mine, no, it's not, it's mine, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, until eventually, eventually, she just said, all right, fine, it's yours. Now. That should be the end of the story because I got the yogurt. That was not the end of the story because that felt a little bit too much like losing to my sister. So I said, no, no, you have the yogurt. And believe it or not, we continue to fight over now giving each other the yogurt. Now, before, remember, before we were fighting over who would get to eat the yogurt, and now neither of us want the yogurt. We want the other person to eat it. And we're going back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, and eventually she just goes, you're going to eat the yogurt. And she turns around to walk, walk out of the kitchen. And I hated that. And so I said, no, you are. And I took the yogurt and whipped it as hard as I could. Now, as soon as I let go of that yogurt, I knew I was in trouble. I committed basically like three, three separate cardinal sins all in one action. I was about to waste food, I was about to make a mess, and I was about to hurt a girl, my sister. And I was done for. All right, I, as soon, I was like, oh no. Thankfully, thankfully, I did not have good aim. I missed her, splattered on the wall. I 
cleaned it up, or at least I thought I cleaned it up, because a couple hours later, while I was over at a friend's house swimming, my mom comes walking up, pulls me home, and says, what's this? And she has a desk pulled to the side, and there's yogurt all over the wall. And I said, yeah, that was me, because I knew she already knew. <laughs> Otherwise, she wouldn't have pulled me home. So I had to cop up, and she made me clean it up, and she also said, what is possibly the worst sentence you will ever hear if you grew up in a house that you, where you received spankings. If your mom said, wait until your father comes home, that was not good news. It was psychological as much as it was going to be physical when he came home. All right. So my dad came home. I got in trouble. And that was it. That was the story. But the story we're going to be going through today has all sorts of twists and turns, kind of like my yogurt story, believe it or not. And, but the, the outcome of this story is completely different. In this story, we find there's a party, there's sibling fighting, there's grief, there's misery, there's exhaustion, there's near-death dehydration, there's weeping. There are all these things. But this story is not about misery or grief or fighting, but it's actually a story of hope. It's a story of grace. So today, as we go through this passage and parallel passages, I want to, I want you to show you this truth and, and how it comes from this passage. And that truth is this, that the giving of God's grace is not dictated by the works of man, but is freely given through God's own plan. All right, one more time. The giving of God's grace is not dictated by the works of man, but is given freely through God's own plan. However, as we, before we get into chapter, uh, chapter 21, verses 8 through 23, which is going to be my main passage, uh, I'm just going to set the stage really quickly, go over a little bit of what Pastor Mitch has already talked about, just so we have a full understanding of what's going on. So if we look at Genesis chapter 21, we'll be reading verses 1 through 7, and uh, we'll start there. And the Lord visited Sarah as he, as he had said, and the Lord did unto Sarah as he had spoken. For Sarah conceived and bare Abraham a son in his old age, at the set time of which Abraham had spoken to him. And Abraham called the name of his son that was born unto him, whom Sarah bare to him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac, being eight days old, as God had commanded him. And Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born. And Sarah said, God hath made me to laugh, so that all that hear will laugh with me. And she said, Who would have said unto Abraham that Sarah should have given children suck? For I born him a son of his old age. So here we see Isaac, the son of promise, is finally born. Last time I got to preach to you all, um, I got to talk about Abraham, who was still Abram, uh, lying to the Pharaoh of Egypt. And way back then, he already had this promise. All right. I made the point that Abraham was doing this after God had already promised him to, to already promise to make him into a great nation. And then Abraham, in last week's sermon with Pastor Mitch, did the same thing again with Abimelech. He lied again. All right. He tried to circumvent God's plan with his own plan. We also saw him try to go around God's plan by having a child with Hagar. All right. In case you guys don't remember, a couple chapters ago. Uh, Sarah was feeling distraught that she hadn't had a child, and so she told Abraham to uh, sleep with a slave woman and that they would have a child that way. And so Abraham did that, all right? But God says, that's not my plan, all right? That's not my plan, that's your plan. 
But Abraham did everything he could to get around it, everything he could to go through with his own plan. And now finally, finally at the beginning of this chapter, God fulfills his promise to give them a child when Abraham is 100 years old and Sarah is 90. Now, just to be clear, I'm not saying finally in the sense that like God was dilly-dallying, but really like from the perspective, Abraham and Sarah were really old, right? They're 90 and 100 years old. Yeah, that's like, that, like older than my grandma was, and they had a brand new child, okay? So finally, God gives them the child of promise, and all is well, right? Everything is good and happy, and God is finally fulfilling his promises, and everyone should be, you know, good to go, right? Now, now, now is the time to reap those promises. But in chapter, for the rest of chapter 21, or much of the rest of chapter 21, we see a different story unfold. And uh, I'm going to be talking to you guys about that. So we're going to read verses 8 through 21. And the child grew and was weaned. And Abraham made a great feast the same day that Isaac was weaned. And Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, which she had borne unto Abraham, mocking. Wherefore she said unto Abraham, Cast out this bondwoman and her son, for the son of this bondwoman shall not be heir with my son, even with Isaac. And the thing was very grievous in Abraham's sight because of his son. And God said unto Abraham, Let it not be grievous in thy sight because of the lad and because of thy bondwoman. And all that Sarah hath said unto thee, hearken unto her voice. For in Isaac shall thy seed be called, and also the son, and also of the son of the bondwoman will I make a nation because he is thy seed. And Abraham rose up early in the morning and took bread and a bottle of water and gave it unto Hagar, putting it on her shoulder and the child and sent her away. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba and the water was spent in the bottle and she cast the child under one of the shrubs. And she went and sat down over against him a good way off, as it were a bowshot. For she said, Let me not see the death of the child. And she sat over against him and lift up her voice and wept. And God heard the voice of the lad, and the angel of God called to Hagar out of heaven and said unto her, What aileth thee, Hagar? Fear not, for God hath heard the voice of the lad where he is. Arise, lift up the lad, and hold him in thine hand, for I will make him a great nation." And God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water, and she went and filled the bottle with water and gave the lad drink. And God was with the lad, and he grew and dwelt in the wilderness and became an archer. And he dwelt in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother took him a wife out of the land of Egypt. So we see at the beginning of the story of this, of this narrative a party. All right, Isaac has just turned two or three. He's passed... Uh, the really vulnerable stage of his life, the early, at least really early vulnerable stage of his life, um, and they're throwing a big, big party, all right? So we have this giant celebration with the child of promise, and everyone is happy, but in comes the half-brother. And the passage says that, it, that he was, Ishmael was mocking, or possibly if your version is different, it might say he was playing with Isaac. And Sarah saw this and told Abraham to cast them out. Now, some of you may be thinking that perhaps Sarah was jealous and overreacting because, you know, what siblings don't fight? You know, who, what siblings don't give each other a little bit of grief, all right? Uh, maybe this was like a JJ throwing a, a yogurt at Brittany situation, right? Maybe this wasn't a big deal. But without getting too deep into the etymology, 
that it's totally different, all right? Abraham is, I'm sorry, <clears throat> what Sarah saw was actually a lot more serious, all right? The etymology of the word can have a range of meanings, everything from playing to with hurting. Even Paul in Galatians 4 believed that Ishmael was being harmful to Isaac. So Sarah, as a mother, was not overreacting, all right? She saw, she saw something that was indicative of a bigger problem, all right? Isaac is two or three. He's the son of promise, and you have an older son picking on him and harming him when he's two or three years old, all right? And Ishmael at this point is well old enough to understand that you don't hurt a toddler at all, much less at his birthday party, right? And so Sarah is seeing something that's indicative of what could be a much larger problem. So Sarah is not overreacting. And Abraham has come face to face with the consequences of his own sin, and he doesn't like it. Abraham was not keen on the solution that Sarah came up with because the passage says it was very grievous for him. Abraham loved his son Ishmael and had no desire to send him and his mother away. Abraham, due to his own actions, put himself in a painful situation that was unlikely to end without grief. And yet, Abraham does what Sarah wanted and he sent them away. But why? Why does Abraham send a son he loves and a woman that he at least, he has a son with, right? The mother of his child. Why does he send them away? All right. And the passage says it straight up. It just says, because God told him to. Now, pause. Some of you might be thinking, didn't you say this story was about grace? So far, we have a child being hurt. We have Abraham being full of grief. We have... As, as we're about to hear a little bit more, we have uh, Hagar and, and Ishmael on near-death experiences. Where is the grace in this? Some of you might think that God's plan shows a harsh, uh, that is harsh, but in reality, everything that happens in this story is full of grace. And let me tell you why. All right. Have you ever heard the old adage, you reap what you sow? Right? You reap what you sow, you, you, you take out of the ground what you put in, right? If, if you plant a seed of corn, you expect a seed of corn. All right, Abraham had done everything in his power to try and get around God's plan. He had sown the seeds of his own pain, all right? He deserved everything that was happening in this story. Abraham had set himself up for failure, and there, are a couple other, and there are a couple ways in this story that God shows him so much grace and, and undeserved grace that, that we as humans just can't understand. And the first thing we need to understand to see that grace is the culture. Now remember, God has already said that the child of Abraham and Sarah would be the inheritor of the covenant. So in that culture, the blessing and inheritance went to the oldest child. All right, There was a possibility that Ishmael, though illegitimate, would feel entitled to some of that inheritance and or blessing. And we actually see a good example of how something like that plays out. We're going, at least we're going to in a few chapters. I won't steal too much of Pastor Mitch's thunder, but we see this with Abraham's own grandchildren, Jacob and Esau. They're brothers. They grew up together, right? But Jacob steals the blessing and inheritance from Esau. Jacob is the younger brother, all right? He does not deserve 
in, in their culture, he never would have gotten the blessing. He never would have gotten the inheritance. He, it, but he tricked his father, Isaac, into giving it to him. And what does Esau do? We say Esau so enraged that he actually tries to kill Jacob. He says, if I see Jacob, I'm going to kill him. I'm going to look for him. I'm going to kill him, my brother, because he stole my inheritance and my blessing. So we see that God is not, is, it's reasonable to think that there was a possible confrontation in the future that is being avoided by Ishmael being sent away. So God is actually sparing Abraham from the grief of his two children, whom he loved, from what could be, uh, from, to keep them from being at mortal odds with each other. That is grace. That is something that God, only God, can plan. That is grace. Second, we need to think about the circumstances of Ishmael's birth. Abraham, again, had tried to get around God's plan by having a child with Hagar. Abraham had planned, had relied on his own plan instead of trusting in God to fulfill his promises. And yet, instead of God telling Abraham, hey, these are the consequences of your sin. I didn't do this to you. You did this to you. God doesn't say that to Abraham. Instead, he offers Abraham comfort and a promise that is only made to, up to this point has only ever been made to Abraham himself, and that's to make Ishmael a great nation. Think about that. God promises to make a great nation out of the product of Abraham's sin. Think about the implications of a promise like that. God is promising prosperity and life to Ishmael for the sake of Abraham. All right? Abraham does not deserve that comfort. Abraham does not deserve to have God show him this, this blessing. But God extends it to him freely. What else could this be but grace? And so Abraham, probably still feeling a little sad, obeys God's command, trusting that God will keep his promise. And he sends them away. He sends Hagar and Ishmael away. And before too long, we find out that they're out of water, they're in the desert, and they're dehydrated, and they're near death. And again, we think, well, where is God? God has promised to, to protect them, to take care of them, at least he's promised to take care of Ishmael, and yet we find Ishmael on the brink of death. So much so that Hagar leaves him under a bush, walks away, and says, I need to get away from him because I cannot stand to be with him when he dies. And she lifts up her voice and cries. Now remember, before all this, Hagar has mocked Sarah for being barren. She mocked her back when she became, Hagar mocked Sarah when Hagar became pregnant with Ishmael. Ishmael has now harmed the son of promise, Isaac. And so now at this point, both of them have perhaps inadvertently or blatantly mocked God's plan. They've mocked God's, God's promises to the, to the people he made them to. And Ishmael and Hagar are not deserving of God's grace. They're not innocent. They're sinful creatures, just like every one of us, and they do not deserve God's grace. And interestingly enough, it doesn't say that either Ishmael or Hagar cried out to the Lord. 
Remember, Hagar, a few chapters ago, when she became pregnant, she ran away a few chapters ago, and God had already come to her and spoken to her. She knew God was real. God had already shown her grace, and yet when she's at the brink of death, when her son is at the brink of death, she just cries. She doesn't look to God. She doesn't turn, turn to the one who already has proven he will take care of her. He doesn't, she doesn't turn to God who has already promised to her to make Ishmael into a great nation. Instead, she cries for herself. But again, we see God's grace because he comes to her and he comforts her. They had tried to make their own way and they failed. And yet God speaks to her, comforts her, and reminds her of the promise he made to her of Ishmael's fate, that he would be a great nation. And so God extends his grace to her and Ishmael, though neither she nor Ishmael sought it out. That is grace. And we see God keep his word. Ishmael and, Hagar, uh, Ishmael and Hagar's immediate need for water is met. God reveals a, a well, and they're able to drink and move on, and they live. And at the, at the end of this, of this narrative, we see that Ishmael gets married. It's the beginning stages of God fulfilling his promise. Ishmael gets married and starts a family. And that is the account of Ishmael and Hagar. Over and over and over, the characters in this narrative scream for judgment. They're begging God to let them face the consequences of their own sin. Because over and over and over, they look to their own plans, they look to their own, own wills, they look to their own desires to fill that, that their needs to fill God's promises, and, but over and over and over, they fail. And when the consequences do come back to bite them, God does not leave them to face those consequences alone. He is there with them, extending his grace. Abraham did not choose the means of grace because we know if he had, he would have never sent Ishmael and Hagar away. But God's grace was so much more than what Abraham could plan, was so much better than what Abraham could foresee, that he, that he did it in a way that Abraham, though maybe was in immediate pain, he did it in a way that Abraham could at least feel comfortable in the fact, knowing that the person he loved, the, conse the consequence of his sin, was still going to be taken care of. Did Abraham deserve that grace? No, but there, was, there God was extending it nonetheless. And so all the people of this story, all the people of this story had to do, despite their, their efforts to circumvent God's plan, was to freely accept the grace that he offered. Now, many people misconstrue God as having two different personalities based off of the testament that they're reading. Uh, many people like to say that the God of the Old Testament is the God of, of judgment. They, they look at passages like the, like the judgment of Nineveh or the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah or the destruction of the Canaanite people and they say, where is God's grace? Where is his mercy for those people? But they like to completely skip over the fact that God time and time again has forgiven and extended grace to those people over and over and over, and they rejected it and rejected it and rejected it. And then they also like to skip over passages like the passage of Hagar and Ishmael, where God's grace is so evident 
that, that it doesn't fit into their narrative. They, they look at it and they say, and they don't like how he works, so they try to make their own way. They try to say, God is not a God of grace. God is not a God of mercy. God doesn't care. God is a God of judgment. Or, or they don't believe in God at all because how can there be a God when there's so much wrong in the world? How can there be a good God when, when we've got people murdering and killing and looting and doing all these terrible things? How can there be a good God of grace? I would ask you all to turn your Bibles to Galatians 4. We're going to be reading verses 21 through 31. Um, and I'm going to just read it uh, in the ESV just for the sake of clarity. Um, so I'll uh, start reading. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One, from, one is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Excuse me. Now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, so also it is now. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. Paul is writing this letter to the believers in Galatia because they were being pulled away by false teaching. There were men who thought that they could somehow choose how, how grace would be received. They believed that through the, the adherence of the law that God's grace would be given to them. They thought that they could fulfill the law on their own terms so that God's grace would be given to them on their own terms. And they wanted to believe that it was up to man to dictate how God would dole out his grace. Paul spends much of his time in this letter saying that is not true. And so Paul appeals to this story. He compares Hagar and Ishmael to several things. Basically, they're all indicative of the law. You see, the law given to the people, the covenant of the law given to the Israelite people, did not save people from sin. Rather, it exposed the sin of the people because no one could keep it perfectly. Under the, under the law, every single person in Galatians, in Galatia, rather, every per single person in this church, every single person in this world are guilty and deserve to face the consequences of our own sin. Under the law, we, we could try and try and try everything in our own power to get around God's means of grace, but it will never work. It didn't matter how much the people of Galatia were grasping at, at finding, at getting their own grace. It didn't matter what they did, good, bad, everything in between. They could never get there. But Paul also uses Sarah and Isaac to illustrate 
the opposite of slavery under the law. He ultimately calls them the children of the children of promise and says that the children of promise are free from the weight of the law. And Paul wants to re- reiterate what the New Testament teaches, and that is the only way of receiving grace is to put your trust in Jesus. Because Jesus, the Son of God, was sent to earth as a man and did the impossible. He fulfilled the law. You and I could never have done that. We still don't do that. We still break God's law. But God came down to earth, lived a perfect life, and fulfilled the law. But the law, according to the law, it was demanded that there be payment for sin in blood. And so Jesus, despite being free from sin, despite not deserving any consequences of sin, died on the cross to pay for your consequences and for mine. Also, you and I could be free from the bonds of the law and sacrifice. Paul wants to make it clear that the children of promise were free. They were not bound under the law. They were free from it. The children of promise were, are no longer, no longer need to toil and, and hope that they can create enough good to, provi- to provide the payment for grace because Jesus has already provided that payment. There is no adding or subtracting to it. Abraham did everything he could to, to provide his own way of grace. Everything he could to, to, to give himself, to fulfill God's promises. He did everything he could in his own humanly power to get around and do it his way. And a lot of us are just like that. We do everything we can to get around God's grace, to make our own way, but it will always end in failure, just as Paul is pointing out in this scripture. And so I want to repeat to you all the the statement I made in my introduction. The giving of God's grace is not dictated by the works of man, but is given freely through God's plan. The grace given to Abraham was not dictated by his lack of faith or sin with Hagar. No one in that situation deserved grace, and yet they all received it. To the believers in this room, to those who have already trusted in Jesus, I know how disheartening it can be to mess up. I know what it's like to struggle with sin and get to the point where you just want to give up. I know what it feels like to get to the point of thinking, God can't or won't forgive me for this anymore. I've done this sin over and over and over. How can God forgive me? You never became a Christian. You did not become a Christian and suddenly have the ability to earn God's grace. Let me repeat that. You did not become a Christian and suddenly have the ability to earn God's grace. You never earned that grace and you never will. What you are feeling is the weight of the law that you're already free from, and yet you're putting yourself back under the weight of that law because you're still trying to circumvent God's grace. Stop it. You will never earn that grace. You never have. You never will. And God's grace has already covered those sins that you're feeling the weight of. He's already given you freedom from that weight. So give your weights to God and embrace the grace that he is freely willing to give you. And to the unbeliever, stop trying to create your own path to grace. God has given to us the only means of God's grace, and there's nothing that you can do about it. There's nothing you can do to change that. Abraham was not happy with 
uh, with the original means of God's grace in this story. Abraham was not happy that he had to send his son away. He loved his son. Don't be, don't, don't be like Abraham, or rather, be like Abraham and follow through with, what, how, with Abraham's example. Abraham, despite not liking it, perhaps, despite fighting it with every, every fiber of his being, gave in to God's plan because he knew that God's plan was best and that God would take care of him. There's nothing you can do to change the means of God's grace. It isn't easy for us to give, control, uh, give away control of our own fate, especially the fate of our spirits. But God has made it clear that there is one and only way to grace, and that's through Jesus. Through the, the payment of Jesus on the cross, through his blood that he did for you and for me. And it's given to us freely. Look to Jesus for grace. The forgiveness and freedom for your sin, for the weight of the law is already there. And all that's left is for you to accept it. Let's pray and then we'll sing some songs. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for this day. I thank you so much that we can come together. I thank you that we can open your word and that we can honor and glorify you through your word. I thank you so much for your grace that, that is extended to us to, no matter the fact that we don't deserve it, that, that we fight it with every ounce of our being, but you're still there ready to extend it to us as long as we're willing to accept it. God, I pray for the, the believers in this room that they would not be disheartened by their sin, but that they would give your, their sin over to God, that they would ask for forgiveness, and that they would not be weighed down by that. And God, I pray for the unbelievers in this room. I pray that they would look to you and realize that there is so much freedom under you, that it is so much better to honor and glorify you, that it's so much better to live their lives under the grace of God than to try to make their own way. God, I pray just as, as we go forward that you would work in our hearts and allow your grace to, to, to be pervasive in all corners of our life. And I pray all these things in your name. Amen.